start by asking you a question this morning, and the question is this, is were you tempted to sin this week? Did you experience any form of temptation, temptation uh, to lust, temptation uh, to lie about something you did, temptation to blow up at your spouse or your kids, temptation to maybe not even come to church here this morning? And if you're a human being, which you are, then the answer is yes. In fact, not only did you experience temptation this week, you probably gave into that temptation. And one of the most common questions I get in ministry is how do I resist the temptation to sin? How do I overcome the temptation to sin that is in my life? And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look at one of the primary ways for us to overcome temptation, that is through prayer. It's through seeking our Father in heaven. Let me remind you what's happening or the context of where we're at here in Luke chapter 22. First, we have Peter and the disciples. You know, Jesus, going back to Mark 14, he tells us, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter says to him, I will never uh, leave you. Even if everyone falls away, I will not. And Jesus tells him, well, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Yet Peter kept insisting, if I have to even die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And following this interaction, Jesus takes them to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, verse 39, he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him there. He brought him to this garden that we know in Mark, the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is a place where Jesus would often take his disciples to get away with them, to meet with them alone. And it was this garden area among the olive groves located on the side of the Mount of Olives where, there was an, where olive oil was prepared, and Jesus brought these men there, and he says to them, When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. And we know that in Mark, he adds, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus knew something. Jesus knew that that prayer bridged the gap between good intentions and reality. Harkening back to last week, that these men, Peter, James, John, the others, they had good intentions, but their good intentions were not enough when it came to overcoming temptation. In fact, it's not good enough for us. What we need is we need something more. We need God. What we need to do is we need to learn to pray. But how or what does it look like? What does it look like for us to pray? Well, we see Jesus here. And Jesus, in verse 41, it says, Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, knelt down, and began to pray. He's in this place, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is fitting. It's the name. It means olive press. And Jesus is in an emotional distress. In fact, in Mark 14, we're told he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he says to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Luke tells us, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The language that Mark uses and Luke uses are strong. It's strong language that Jesus is deeply distressed and horrified. There's, he was full of extreme sorrow, pain. And it was so severe that it threatened to cause him to die at that very moment. He's under great emotional distress. But why or from what? Well, if you know the story, you know what's about to happen. In a few short hours, Jesus would become and be severely punished for the very thing he hated, sin. That he would be forsaken and abandoned by and from the one that he was closest to and deeply united with, his father. 
That we find Jesus here in the garden, there's this real conflict, really tempted to not obey his father, to not follow the plan that his father had put out before him. We find Jesus under great stress, horrified. And though we aren't told that Satan was in the garden, there's great reason to believe that Satan, in one sense, is there, and that he is the one tempting. Jesus, for Jesus, is the tempter. As one pastor put it, Satan's objective throughout Christ's life was to keep him from going to the cross, where in fulfillment of God's preordained plan, he would die as a substitute for sinners. Preventing the Lord from getting to the cross was his goal in this final and most severe temptation. But what we know about Jesus is Jesus did not give in temptation. So how? How did he overcome it? Well, it was through prayer. He withdrew about a stone's throw away, knelt down, began to pray. This night, the night before his death, consumed with grief to the point of death, tempted not to carry out the plan of his father, we find Jesus praying. And not are we just told, we're not just told that Jesus prayed and then it's just left at that. But we actually, the curtain gets pulled back on Jesus' prayer life, on what he says, what's happening as he is seeking his father in heaven. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is look at this prayer, the prayer of Jesus in the garden and how Jesus prayed. It can serve, I think, as a model for us when it comes to prayer. There's two categories to set this up. The first category is he petitioned his father. You know, many people, they will break prayer up into kind of four categories using a familiar acronym called ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we find Jesus modeling all of these, but in this moment, we find Jesus primarily doing one of the four, petitioning God or supplication. In other, words, in other words, of saying it, he is appealing to God. He is making requests of his Father in heaven. And this is what Jesus did. In fact, Hebrews 5 tells us during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. To Jesus, he petitions his Father. And this is probably the category of prayer that we're most familiar with or more, more naturally go to as we a petition to God. But what I want to do is drill down into Jesus' petition here and look at four aspects of his petition to his Father in heaven as he's appealing to his Father in heaven. The first one is this. There's four words. The first is he petitioned honestly. Jesus is brutally honest about what's going on in his life. In fact, my guess is for some of us, when we read this, if you stop and think about it, you might even be a bit uncomfortable with what Jesus is saying. It's like, Jesus, can you actually feel that way? And can you say that? Can you say those things? Can you actually feel that? And the answer is yes. We're reminded in Hebrews 4, 15, that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he is one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet we know that he did not sin. That Jesus is in this moment of temptation. There's this moment of stress and grief. Deeply grieved to the point of death, he says, that his soul is swallowed up in sorrow. The NLT puts it, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And what we find with Jesus here, he is praying and he is telling us how he feels. 
And prayer is this opportunity for us to be raw with our emotion. It's an opportunity for us to express exactly what we're feeling, what's going on in our life. You remember the Psalms. The Psalms are full of this type of prayer. Psalm 55, David, betrayed by a friend. Listen to how David expresses what's going on to God in his life. God, listen to my prayer and do not ignore my plea for help. Pay attention to me and answer me. I'm restless and in turmoil with my complaint because of the enemy's voice because of the pressure of the wicked for they bring down disaster on me and harass me in anger my heart shudders within me terrors of death sweep over me fear and trembling grip me horror has overwhelmed me and that Jesus he expressed how he felt he was honest and we need to do the same thing when it comes to our life when it comes to when we're going through difficulty Temptation, we should go to the God and be honest and raw with our emotion. In fact, God tells us in Psalm 55 to cast our burdens on him, to bring our fears, our burdens, our problems, our pain, our temptation to him, to be honest. Honest about what's taking place in our own life. But Jesus wasn't just honest about his emotion. He's also honest about what he desired, about his temptation here. He made it clear. In verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. I mean, think about that statement. Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. In his honesty, Jesus asked God to remove this cup. Now, what is the cup? We know the cup is God's wrath. It's the wrath of God, the just wrath of God that would be poured out on the life of Christ for the sin that you and I have committed against God, that Jesus would be punished, that Jesus would be forsaken, separated from his Father, that Jesus would experience the worst thing that any person could ever experience, the just wrath of God poured out on their life because of their sin. It was Jesus who would willingly substitute himself in our place on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. Uh, Spurgeon, he says this, all hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was made to drink. All of hell was distilled in that cup. I mean, Jesus isn't just kind of like going through a hard decision here but Jesus is looking square in the face of the wrath of God all of hell being poured out on him not just death but abandonment from God the Jesus who knew no sin would become sin and he would die in our place and there is this agony and pain there is this temptation to resist what God wants him to do. And what we see is Jesus honestly asking God, God, take this cup away from me. If you're willing, remove this cup of your wrath from me. And I think this is an amazing scene. Because we see clearly the humanity of Jesus. I don't think Jesus is putting on a show here. I think he's sincere. I think he's sincere in what he's feeling. I think he's sincere in what he is asking 
It's not a show, it's not just some, uh, he's not just doing something for the sake of example, but there's real distress, real conflict. I gotta believe he really wanted God to change the plan. If there's some other way, God, would you please make that way possible? Would you not make it so that I'm the one who bears the full brunt of your holy wrath, but would you bring something else? I mean, that's remarkable. And at the same time, when Jesus is expressing this, when he is making this request of God, he shows it's okay to ask God to remove the very thing that's causing the pain, the stress in our life, right? There's things that come into our life that are hard, and there's temptation wrapped up in those. Temptation to not trust God as there's pain and difficulty brought in. But Jesus shows us that we can actually go and ask God to remove that very thing. Paul does the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12. He tells us there's this thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. We don't know exactly what that is, but Paul was given this thorn, and he asked God three times to remove it from him. And we know that the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And see, much of of prayer, much of our prayer life is going to the Lord, expressing how we feel, what we don't like, what we wish would be different, and asking God to change it. Prayer is not only communicating how we feel then, but also what we want. And why did Jesus honestly petition God? How could he do this? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I'm just going to give you uh, two words here. First is this, Father. It has to do with how he saw us, God. Uh, years ago, uh, my daughter, Winley, who is 10 now, I have to think sometimes for a minute about how old my kids are, and she's just turned 10. She was learning to ride her bike, not at 10, but, you know, years ago. And uh, she was coming down the hill by our house, and I was watching her go down the sidewalk down the hill, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is not going to end well. Um, doesn't look like she's going to stay up on the bike. And sure enough, she kind of biffs it and bike, you know, goes down. She goes down. It's like if you've ever crashed a bike before, you're like kind of intertwined in your bike. Your bike's on you. You're on the bike, however it is. And I start running over there. And as naturally as she crashed, she's crying and screaming. Her knees scraped up pretty good. A lot of blood on her knee. And in the midst of crying, do you know what she's yelling? Daddy, daddy. And you know what Jesus, in his anguish and temptation, distress, is doing? Crying out, Abba, Father, Father. Why? Because Jesus didn't just see God as this God, but God was his Father. And fathers care about their kids. I love my kids. I deeply care about what happens to them. They see me, you know, at least to some age of their life as one who can protect them and help them take care of their problems. And see, as a believer in Christ, you are a child of God. He is described as your father. Look at Romans 8. All those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that the Spirit of God, that the Spirit that lives in you is the Spirit of Christ. You have the same Father as Christ. In fact, we are instructed by Jesus to go to God as our Father in heaven. Now, I know not all of us have had great experiences with our fathers. 
But this is why it's so important not to take that experience of our earthly father and automatically superimpose it onto our heavenly father. They're not the same. That we have to let the scripture mold our minds and reform our thinking about who God our father actually is. And God, your father in heaven, cares about your life. He deeply cares about you. So much so in 1 Peter 5, he says, casting all your care on him in verse 7 because he cares about you. And when you know someone cares about you, one thing that is true is that you're willing to engage with them and you're willing to be vulnerable with them. You're willing to be honest about how you feel, what you want. Jesus here, right? Humble, honest, looking to his father because he knows his father cares about him, vulnerable with what's going on. Do you view God as your father? Or do you just view him as someone who's distant, way over here, who's really just disengaged from your life, from concern about you? Or do you see him as your father who is in heaven, who is deeply concerned with you, who loves you, who's good and want what's best for you. Second, Jesus leads to Jesus being brutally honest is the word of faith. Faith. Jesus believed. He actually believed that his father could change the plan. Listen to what he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. All things are possible for you. Prior to this, in Mark chapter 10, he tells his men, with men it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. And Jesus here is practicing what he preached. He didn't just tell people that all things are possible with God. He actually believed that all things are possible with God. He believed that God had the power to alter the plan, if you will, and so he asked him to do it. He asked him, God, would you take this cup away? All things are possible for you. You can do whatever. Do we see faith in action here? Because Jesus believed what God said, he acted, or he asked God to remove the cup, the suffering that lie ahead. And when we believe in something, truly believe it, we will do it. We'll act on it. And that, I believe, is in part Jesus' point here. I think for all of us, for me in particular, probably one of the most challenging things is just do I really believe that God has the power to answer my prayers? Do I really believe that God has the the power to help me overcome my temptation to sin? This addiction that is in my life. And what Jesus says is yes. He's setting an example for us and encouraging us to go before God and say, Father, I believe that you have the power to do this, therefore, would you? Would you? Would you? And more often, we need to be like children. My children, like all children, are good for, at asking for things. Uh, we're good as kids or, you know, to our parents asking for things as well. And we need to be like a child going to our Father in heaven, petitioning him, that in faith, in faith appealing to God with requests that are on our hearts. So Jesus petitioned his Father honestly. The second aspect of his petition is he petitioned him humbly, Verse 42, if you are willing, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. This is such a powerful and important statement. 
But I think in order to understand, I need to clarify what Jesus is saying here, what he knows or doesn't know, maybe, is a better way to put it. Most of the time, when we think about this statement, not my will, but yours be done, we think about it from the perspective of not really knowing what God's will is for our life. So we pray about something, say we have some health condition, or someone else has a health condition, we pray, God, would you please heal them from X, but God, not my will, your will be done. And that's good. I think it's a good way to approach prayer, to ultimately submit our requests to the will of God. But notice Jesus here. Jesus isn't wondering what God's will is. He knows what it is. But he came to earth, right, with the very purpose for which he was sent by his Father, was to be the sacrifice for our sin. So what is going on? When he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, what is happening? Well, Jesus, I think he is resolving again in his heart to follow through with God's plan to the point of, the, of his very own death. He's saying to God, God, I am submitting to you, to your plan, to your way. God, I want to do it your way. I want your will to be done. This is my desire. This is my heart. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I want. This is what's going on. But God, ultimately, I want your plan to be carried out. Oftentimes when we pray about decisions like a, a job decision or, or a relationship, something that we really want, we have a tendency to approach prayer with our mind kind of already made up. Like we already know what we're going to do, but we're go and we pray about it because when we pray about it, we feel better about our decision or at least we can tell other people we prayed about it, right? Have you ever been there? The starting point, that can be the starting point, if you will. But what we find with Jesus is he doesn't come with his mind already made up, like I'm gonna go do this, God, not I'm gonna do what you want. But there's this conflict and this real temptation to not do what he knows he should. And so you see Jesus wrestling with this conflict. You see him wrestling with this temptation to follow his own will, if you will. We see this Jesus sincerely verbalizing his thinking. And then we see Jesus surrender and entrusting his life to his father. God, your will be done. I know what your will is. And so, God, I want to do your will. Now, not all the time, but there are definitely plenty of times like Jesus where we know what God wants us to do, but we're in conflict. We're tempted not to do it. God, I know you really want me to get up today and spend time reading the word of God. God, I know that what you want is you want me to uh, you know, come to church this weekend or have you ever been in this situation where somebody hurts you? They've sinned against you. And in your heart, all you want is you want revenge. You want to get back at them. You want them to feel the pain that you are experiencing in that moment. But you know what God's will is, right? You know how you're to respond to someone who hurts you. God's word is extremely clear about it. He tells us vengeance is not ours, Paul says, but vengeance is the Lord. Instead, what you should do is you should bless your enemy, pray for your enemy, uh, love your enemy, forgive those who sin against you. But that's hard. That's hard. And there's a temptation to resist forgiveness in loving and blessing and say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to hold on to bitterness. 
And see, what prayer does in these situations, it can help us come to this place of surrender and resolve to do the will of God. God, no, 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 I know what you want me to do. You want me to forgive them, but God, help me to forgive. See, when you, when you pray, when you enter into, you're entering into the presence of God, and when you enter into the presence of God, there's this, this ability to gain clarity and being reminded of not only what God wants us to do, but what God wants us to do is what's best for us to do. See, God's will, Paul says, is good, pleasing, and perfect. God is a good father. And he will work all things out for the good of those who love him. And they were reminded as we seek God in prayer that obeying God is better. That obedience leads to blessing. And so we say, Lord, I want to follow your will. God, what I want is this. I don't want to forgive this person. I don't want to let go. But God, I know what you want me to do. And so, Lord, I will do it. I will do it. And do you know what happens? See, when you're humble, when you're humble, it opens you up to the grace of God. It opens you up to the power of God to come into your life, to change you, to move you, to help you, to do what's right, to make the right decision, to resist the temptation, the humility James says, God gives grace to the humble. That we are met with the grace of God when we approach God in humility. That he will give you what you need to help you in your time of need. And so Jesus, he's honest, he's humble. Third is he prays fervently. Luke 40, 22, 44 says, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently being in anguish, and Luke tells us he's in anguish. There's drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a real medical condition where your body, blood can start coming out of your pores. So to help us understand the anguish that Jesus is in, we have this picture of drops of blood coming out of Jesus' pores. I mean, I don't know if any of you have been in quite that type of duress. Maybe you have. And anguish, But what does Jesus do? As the, the pressure is mounting, the temptation is building to resist God's will, what does he do? It says this, he prays more fervently. Jesus doesn't pull back, but he presses in. Fervently, eagerly, deeply is the idea. More intensely. Or it means exhaustively that he prayed harder, if you will. When the temptation mounts, when the stress mounts, and he gets more and more and more and more, what do we do? We should pray harder. Not less, not look to something else. We should get down on our knees like Jesus, so to speak, and we should pray fervently, intensely, I try to imagine what Jesus is experiencing. You know, I don't, I don't know how to really put that into words. I don't know if there's any, quite situ any situation that probably quite puts into real clarity what Jesus was going through. And I'm trying to imagine Jesus in the garden. You know, the disciples over here sleeping, and Jesus is in anguish. 
He's a stone's throw away. He's not that far away. And he's intensely praying, intensely fighting temptation through prayer, full of grief and sorrow. But Jesus didn't give up, but he leaned in. Do you pray fervently? Is there this sense of earnesty in your prayer life? This, this intensity as you pray. When you're experiencing temptation or whatever the situation is, I mean, forget just about temptation, whatever it might be. There's anxiety mounting in your life. How often do you fervently pray? And I, I think, I don't just say this to you, I say this to myself. I think so oftentimes the problem is we don't fervently pray. We don't pray fervently enough. And so oftentimes what happens is we just give ourselves to other things. You know, when we're in distress or we're in, uh, experiencing anxiety and worry, it's so easy just to find something else. Like just, oh, pull up our phone and scroll and scroll and scroll for hours. I think right now, I think tweens, I don't know, whatever category of people that is, they scroll on their phone for nine hours a day. Think about that. Nine hours a day. I heard that yesterday. I'm thinking, that, that is so much time. And so, oftentimes, we don't give ourselves to the thing that actually we need to give ourselves to, which is prayer. And so we see Jesus modeling for us what we need to do. We need to pray fervently. Lastly, he petitioned God faithfully. Luke doesn't show this, but Matthew and Mark's accounts both show Jesus where he leaves and then he comes back to his disciples, leaves to go pray again, comes back and does this three times. I wouldn't doubt if he did it more. But that Jesus was persistent in his prayer. He didn't give up. He didn't just pray once and he was done. But he continued to pray again and again and again. He was persistent. He was faithful. And he asked, notice he asked the same thing. We're not told that he necessarily prayed something different. He was faithful not only to praying, but faithful to praying the same thing. He persisted. And this is not only something we see with Jesus, but we see throughout the scriptures, but we see perfectly modeled in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we want to be faithful to praying, faithful to seeking the Lord in prayer, going to God our Father. And so in closing, one question, one instruction. The question is this. Are you sleeping? Now, you may be thinking, what, what do you mean? I don't mean are you sleeping right now on my message. Maybe you are, but whatever. <clears throat> God will judge you. That's fine. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, strike that from the recording. Um, how do you rebound from that? Anyhow, Jesus, I'm just going to press on. Jesus, he says, he says to the disciples, why are you sleeping? Now they're full of anguish and grief, is what we're told. But this is like the, the, the moment, right? Like they, they were just told by Jesus, you're all going to deny me. And they're like, no, 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 there's no way, Jesus, we're going to deny you. We're going to stay with you. 
that they were warned about the temptation, and then Jesus brings them to the garden, and Jesus says, you know what you need to do? You need to pray so you don't give in to temptation, and Jesus goes over here and prays, and what you see is Jesus does not give in to temptation, and the disciples do. And oftentimes, what happens is we sleep. I don't mean literally. I mean we just don't actually go and seek God in prayer. And the thing that we need to do is we need to be like what Jesus says at the latter part of verse 46. Get up and pray. Get up and pray. So that you won't fall into temptation. Hebrews 4, 15 or 4, 16, I mentioned this earlier. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Where do we find mercy and grace to help us in our darkest hour, in the moment of temptation? It's when we get up and we pray. It's when we go before the Lord and we honestly, humbly, fervently, faithfully petition God. And so brothers and sisters, my exhortation just to us is that we would do that more. That we do that more. And what God will do is he will give you grace to resist temptation. He will give you the grace to trust him. You know, Paul says he will give you a way out in your temptation. One of the ways out is through prayer. Yet how often do we not take God up on that offer, so to speak? And so my hope is this, that we would just begin to get up and pray more with one another, individually, whatever it might be. It would be a people who are seeking God in prayer, petitioning him honestly, humbly, faithfully, and fervently. Let's pray. Father. God, we do need your grace. And we recognize, Lord, that the way to receive your grace is by being humble. Lord, we know we can pray and not be humble, but Lord, we ask that you would just give us grace to pray in humility, God, that we would be positioning our hearts before you, God. We want to be met with grace in our time of need. God, we want to be met, God, when we are tempted, we want it to be met with your power to overcome, to resist that temptation. So help us, Lord, to seek your face. God, thank you that you've given us one another. Thank you that we can have others praying for us, interceding for us. But God, may we be a people who pray. God, may we be like Jesus, who really believes that you have the power to change things, that nothing is impossible for you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.